everyone loved it but me. My name is Lisa Hedger. I am a freelance writer, editor, and journalist, and this is the podcast where we analyze super popular literature. Today is part two of Spare. I'm going to tell you some things that I like about the book, some things that I'm not a huge fan of, and I'm going to give you just some of my general takeaways. Now, on to the show. All right, I'm very excited to talk about kind of the second half of Spare. But before I jump into it, I want to just encourage you all to, if you haven't yet, to like or subscribe and follow my show. And it would be a huge help if you would tell people that you know who love books, tell them about my podcast. I really want to grow this community. Thank you. All right. Thank this is going to be my second of three parts. I have finished the book and I've taken some careful notes and I want to highlight some things that I think are not getting highlighted in the thousands of, of articles about this book. And based on my notes, I did not even get into jotting any notes yet really about about Megan, so we're still kind of right in, in the middle half of the book. What I want to highlight is, like if you're thinking about reading this book, it is a very easy book to read. I did a combination of listening, I did audio, and reading. So I did both, which is one of my favorite things to do. They're short chapters, it is easy to follow. It marches along chronologically for the most part. You have some jumps at the beginning and some jumps at the end, but it's pretty easy to follow those those jumps. Where I really feel this book excels, and I mentioned it a little bit in part one, having finished it, I really, really feel it excels in how he writes about his, you know, paralyzing grief from the loss of his mom the anxiety he faced along with that, the anxiety and PTSD that he faced when he went to war. I feel he does an excellent job writing about as a celebrity, right? What that is like facing this anxiety and grief and grappling with coming up with these, the the right strategies, you know, which it takes him years and years and years to discover. The the villain, obviously I mentioned this, the villain is still the British media, you guys. And even though I, I I'm not sure the the British media always deserves to be blamed for every single thing, I think where this book really excels is he this is the first time he's he has gotten to tell his own story in his own words. And for most of us who have our own social media, who are able to share things about ourselves in any way we want to. Do we want to post on Instagram? Sure. No, thank you. We make those choices. The images and pictures of our families and our friends, our trips, our ups and downs, we get to decide what we want to convey. And and he's really never had that that opportunity. I think the fact that this is the first time he's in control of his story is is certainly significant. Obviously, I'm a longtime journalist. The way the British media and the royals have these like 
crazy ways of communicating and giving out certain information is not above board, is completely ridiculous. And I am glad that he brings those bad relationships to light and, and about what's happening. The issue I want to also address is accountability, where where I think it really excels, like I said, is grief, anxiety. The accountability part, I still think that's accountability for his own actions, things that he's done. In part one, I was noticing, I was kind of disappointed that, again, nearly 40-year-old Harry isn't looking back on some of his youthful indiscretions with a different lens. For example, if you check out Tom Felton's autobiography, that was the guy who played Draco Malfoy. He feels horrible, like when he made fun of Emma Watson. As a nearly 40-year-old, he's looking at it differently. So Harry, when he's going back and looking at some of these things that he did, he he bullied a matron. He he bullied this this woman who worked for his school horribly but again as a nearly 40 year old I would have thought he would have looked upon that differently this happens a couple of times even in the middle part he he goes on a trip to Vegas fine that's great right before he's going to go to war for the second time and he's you know letting off steam before he goes to war again perfect no no problem he's in his you know late 20s he decides to play. He's he's with a group of people in a hotel room. He decides to play strip pool. He suggests it. And then the very next day, pictures arise. You got it. You know, he's naked. <laughs> and, you know, this is the time. It's like in the mid-2000s. Like, everyone has a cell phone. Everyone is going to take a picture. It's one of those things that if you're a celebrity, you know that if you're going to be around a group of people and you're going to be naked. Somebody's going to take a picture. And this, he reacts and he says, I berated myself. How had I let it happen? How had I been so stupid? Why had I trusted other people? I'd counted on strangers having goodwill. I'd counted on these dodgy girls showing some basic decency. And now I was going to pay the price forever. These photos would never go away. They were permanent. So I feel like even on reflecting on that, that's kind of something that he has to take up maybe a little more accountability, perhaps not blaming the dodgy girls and and things like that. And again, also acknowledge his privilege, you guys, because guess what? He, it didn't affect his job, right? It, he was still able to go to the war and I know, and I'm, I'm sure you do too. We all know people who have done far, far less posted things that were much, much less controversial on social media or had other people post things about us where people got fired. I think that's another situation where I would like to see him kind of reflect his fortune that he is basically, you know, some people, I guess, debate if the royals are celebrities or not, but I I think they are. (laughs) And so, and it is also a moment where I think Charles shines. My biggest surprise in, in this book has been, I have been surprised how much I have appreciated Charles' efforts as a father. And even if he hasn't been perfect, he is trying. And this is what Harry writes. Pa was kind again. 
Soon after my arrival, I met Pa nearby Burke Hill. To my surprise, to my relief, he was gentle, even bemused. He felt for me, he said. He'd been there, though he'd never been naked on a front page. Actually, that was untrue. When I was about eight years old, a German newspaper had published naked photos of him taken with a telephoto lens while he was holidaying in France. My army superiors, like Pa, were nonplussed. They didn't care about me playing billiards in the privacy of a hotel room, naked or not. So I do think that he was very fortunate, and I think it's because he was a prince. Unfortunately, I think other folks in similar circumstances might have lost their jobs. Now, it did become good fun. I actually didn't remember this, and he reminded me this at the time, that many other military folks, I guess, across the world did support him and started, like, posting pictures with, like, they're, you know, mostly naked with a military helmet or something like that covering the the part. So it, it I think it, it actually ended up being a bit of a morale boost, if if you will. But there's, that's just like one little example where I kind of think that that he, you know, it's so easy again to, to blame it on others, but it just takes, you know, a sentence or two to kind of acknowledge like, okay, I made that decision, you know, knowing that there were people I did not know in the room. I chose to become naked in in a group full of strangers. You know, it wasn't it wasn't his close friends. He made that decision. I hope to see him ultimately at at some point take a, a little more accountability. I would like that. But again, I want to kind of get back to you know the the anxiety with his mom and the PTSD. That is where I truly, truly believe this book excels. I think the more celebrities, the more people who, again, continue to just talk about these, you know, suffering from panic attacks before speeches, before things that they have to do, I think that really helps all of us, helps everybody who's going through this to to understand it. He's really searching you know, he, he's trying throughout his life, I think. He's, he's trying to figure out, like, what should he do? What is his path? How can he help the world? And I think the military was a wonderful opportunity for him. I think that's something that, honestly, it, if he had his true choice, I think he would have stayed in the military for a while, for even longer. But then he talks about in 2013, he went to Africa and was trying to help the exact charity that his mom had worked on in her historic trip to Angola. So she'd highlighted areas that were heavily mined. This, I believe, was back either in the 80s. No, I think it was in the 90s. Yes. And he wrote, this had been Mummy's most passionate cause at the end. She'd gone to Bosnia three weeks before she'd gone to Paris in August 1997. Many could still remember her walking alone into a live minefield, detonating a mine via remote control, announcing bravely, one down, 17 million to go. And then he writes now, taking up her cause... Detonating a landmine myself made me feel closer to her and gave me strength and hope for a brief moment. But overall, I felt that I was walking each day through a psychological, emotional minefield. I never knew when the next explosion of panic would be. 
So I, I thought that was very poignant. I like that writing style of kind of comparing. And I thought that that was very reflective, right? So he is providing, I think, his most thought-provoking analytical comments are about his mom's death and you know her and him I think that is where he's done his most work right and, and maybe in his next stage of life we're gonna see him him work on some some other things but this has really consumed much of his life is trying to process his loss of her and then now of course like we're saying at this time the PTSD then he's realizing that he's suffering severe anxiety and like many people who suffer severe anxiety, they don't know what to do. Should you take medicine? Should, you know, people tell you to go on walks. People tell you to exercise. Like, but different solutions work for different people. It's not always the same thing. He says, he talks about returning to Britain and diving into the research. He was desperate to find a cause, a treatment. He spoke to his pa and really struggling with panic, panic attacks and anxiety. He sent me to a doctor, which was kind of him, but the doctor was a general practitioner with no knowledge or new ideas. He wanted to give me pills. I didn't want to take pills. I was just speaking with somebody this past week about extreme anxiety just just yesterday, and they were saying, I've tried pills. That does not work. I do not want to go back to pills. So I think, again, that is something just many of us can resonate with. You, okay, you don't want to take pills. You've tried pills. It didn't work. Like, you need something else. And he talks again about talking to his pa, Prince, now King Charles, at Highgrove. That's where they lived. Pa and I spoke at some length about what I'd been suffering. I gave him the particulars. I told him story after story. Towards the end of the meal, he looked down at his plate and said softly, I suppose it's my fault. I should have gotten you the help you needed years ago. I assured him that it wasn't his fault, but I appreciated the apology. Again, I thought that was very thoughtful because, you know, Prince now King Charles, he has taken a lot of hits in, in the media and... A lot of people, I think, who question, you know, some of his decisions and his parenting and things like that. And this book really shows me that he's trying. He's really trying. And and he's not perfect. And but he is trying and he loves these two boys, you know. And, and again, we're going to get into that. But there's this whole corporate structure, the, you know, the, the firm or whatever you want to call it, the royal family that makes decision-making and being empathy, right? Being em emphatic, right? It makes, puts a lot of walls around the, those kind of things. And I, I think he tried. He actually says one of the first times that he actually cried about his mom was again in his late 20s. This was when he was dating Cressida. This is the first time I've been able to cry about my mom since the burial, Wiping my eyes, I thanked her. She was the first person to help me get across the barrier, to help me unleash the tears. It was cathartic. 
it accelerated our bond and added an element rare in past relationships, immense gratitude. I was indebted to Cress, and that was the reason why when we got home from Kazakhstan, I felt so miserable because at some point during the ski trip, I realized we weren't a match. All right, guys, so, so that to me, that writing, it's a little... It's a little bumpy, right? Like, I, I think that was him not wanting to get into too many details about what happened with Cressida. But like at the first part of that paragraph, he is appreciating her and saying that like she has helped him to, you know, go through this barrier that he had, hadn't been through in years and years. And at the same time, we weren't a match. Goodbye, Cressida. <laughs> you know, that that kind of stuff. There, there are some ex- other examples of that kind of thing where you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like, I think there's some things he's not he's not telling us because we're just kind of having to connect some some dots. And then he starts getting into the Invictus games and how important that is to him. And the the Invictus Games, those are the games from similar to the Paralympics, along those lines for wounded warriors, a very, very stiff competition of, of wounded warriors. But again, he talks about this cause. He talks about how important it is to him. But at the same time, he talks about facing panic attacks and anxiety as right before he was getting ready to give a speech. He says... He says, long walk through a red carpeted labyrinth. My cheeks looked red carpeted as well. My smile was frozen. The fight or flight response in full effect. I scolded myself under my breath for being this way. These games were celebrating men and women who'd lost limbs, pushed their bodies to the limit and beyond. And here I was freaking out about a little speech, but it wasn't my fault. Anxiety by this point was controlling my body, my life, and this speech, which I believe meant so much to so many, couldn't help but exasperate my condition. I feel like sharing like those specific details, like it impacted me right before I made this giant speech that was so pivotal where Michelle Obama was introducing him, I think via satellite. You know, that was it was a big thing. But he gives specific examples talking about how anxiety, how, you know, these things have impacted his day-to-day life. And I thought that was was very, very instrumental, like just really helpful. Now, the question is, does the book go down some rabbit holes that we maybe don't need to hear about, right? Like this frostbitten penis and... Kate and Megan sharing lip gloss and you know he goes on this little weird section about going to part a party at Courtney Cox's house like yes I, there are some things that perhaps I'm not sure are are needed but again my what I think are some of the most best parts of the book are when he dives into to the anxiety and then uh, another thing that I think that he does is he's sharing with us challenges in his relationship with William, Willie as he calls him, because their relationship is, it's not equal, 
right? William, we know, is, is the heir and he's the spare. So because of that, William gets treated one way and Harry gets treated the other way. And that leads to an immense amount of competition between the two of them. If I didn't know, I might just think, well, gosh, you know, William gets everything and Harry is always second. And, and I think that to some extent, there's some truth to that. But also keep in mind, like there are certain things because William is the spare, there are certain things they won't let him do, like go to war like Harry could. And you see them squabbling with what I think it, it, it's comes across as just ridiculous, right? Like they're squabbling about their charitable works. You know, they, they both fell in love with Africa. And I think it, that also connects them. They both have this connection because of their mom. That was one of her most favorite places. And Harry decides like he really wants to focus on Africa when he's out of the war. Like that's going to be one of his passion projects. One small problem, Willie. Africa was his thing, he said, and he had the right to say this, or he felt that he did because he was the heir. It was ever in his power to veto my thing, and he had every intention of exercising or even flexing that veto power. We'd had some real rows about it. One day, there was like some family members and one of the mates, one of the sons says, why can't you both work on Africa? Willie had a fit flew at the sun for daring to make such a suggestion because rhinos elephants that's mine it was also so obvious he cared less about fighting his purpose or passion than about winning his lifelong competition with me that's page 255 and he just he really spells out like i said his relationship with and conflict, his conflict with him, Willie. And what I think is so interesting is this is where he feels like it's so essential for him to tell his story. He feels like the media and press always portrayed them as so close and this lifelong bond and, you know, best friends. And, and he says, oh, it wasn't always that way, right? It wasn't always that way. For instance, when Willie married Kate... Uh, the, the press said that Harry was the best man, but he said, well, no, I, I wasn't. I really wasn't the best man. But they just told the press that because that's what the press wanted to hear. So that is one of those examples. Now, at that time, at William's wedding, on the day of his wedding, he was grumpy, according to Harry, because he couldn't wear what he wanted to wear. The queen, granny, as they call her, wanted him to wear a certain, you know, coat, and he didn't want to wear that. You can see then when it becomes Harry's turn and Harry gets married and Harry, you know, wants to wear a certain type of clothing and he wants to keep his beard and, and things like that. And I'm going to actually delve into this a little more in, in part three because, like I said, I... I, we're not even like quite getting, I haven't even like gotten into the Megan part yet at all. I want to delve into that, but you can see where these two brothers, the way this firm and this business is set up is kind of set up to cause friction. One, 
you know, is, is superior. And, and the other who isn't, but also gets to do certain things because he's considered the spare that the first one didn't do. Makes me really think about William and Kate's decision now to have three kids and not two. Because when there's only two, I think the 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 power structure is is definitely off, which which we can see in in this part part three. Get ready for it. We're gonna jump into to the Megan section. That's the part I think people either get excited about or, or not as much. But I I really think, like I said, that that the grief part is is what I feel is really excelling in this particular book. Now, again, I want to always thank you for listening to the show. And if you have that Everyone Loved It But Me book that you would like to see me discuss, please reach out to me. You can go to my website. I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. My website is www.everyoneloveditbutme.com. I hope that you have a lovely day. And most importantly, I hope you get time to read today. today.